0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Taunting Terrors, where I detail cases of victims' families who were taunted and terrorized by their loved ones' killers through anonymous phone calls or messages. In this episode, a young girl is snatched away while on a camping trip with her family, and anonymous calls come in soon after demanding a ransom. But the trail would grow cold until exactly one year later when the kidnapper would call her mother to brag about taking her daughter. It would be largely due to the mother's ability to show amazing forgiveness and compassion towards her daughter's kidnapper that would help authorities to catch a serial killer. This is the case of Susan Yeager. In late June 1973, the Yeager family was on a month-long vacation. Marietta Yeager, her husband, and their five children had traveled 2,000 miles from their home near Detroit, Michigan, to Montana for a month of camping in Montana State Parks. Their first stop was at Missouri Headwaters State Park, near the town of Three Forks. Marietta's parents met them there to join in the family trip and spend some time with their grandchildren. The family had enjoyed the beauty of the park's natural scenery and had found an ideal spot to set up camp, a shady spot near the riverbank. They had pitched several tents for their large group, and as evening fell, they all retired to their tents. The children snuggled into their sleeping bags and drifting off to sleep, listening to the evening forest sounds. Sometime late in the night, 13-year-old Heidi awoke. She was sharing her tent with the baby of the family seven-year-old Susie. Hearing her rustling in her sleeping bag, Susie awoke too. They were excited about their first camping trip and spent some time chatting quietly about the next day's activities before settling back to sleep. At just after 4 a.m. that morning, Heidi awoke and saw that her sister Susie was no longer in her sleeping bag. Upon adjusting her eyes, she saw light streaming in from the wrong side of the tent. It wasn't coming in from the front tent flap, but instead from a sidewall of the tent that was located just next to her sister's sleeping bag. Looking closer, she noticed that a circular cut had been slashed into the canvas, creating an opening. She got up and went outside, but little Susie was nowhere to be seen. She ran to alert her parents. The Yeagers quickly fanned out around the campground after seeing the hole sliced into the tent. There didn't seem to be any sign of a struggle, but they feared the worst. After a few minutes of searching the campsite and not finding their youngest child, Bill Yeager and his father-in-law quickly drove to Three Forks to report Susie missing to the police. The Gallatin County Sheriff's Office quickly put together a search team made up of deputies and other officers from surrounding police departments and volunteers, and a massive search effort began. It was the largest search effort ever in the state of Montana and was conducted by foot, horseback, vehicles, on boats, and in the air— but there was no sign of the little dark-haired seven-year-old. By this time, it was clear that Susie had not left on her own. It was believed that someone had cut the tent open and quickly carried the child away, without making a sound. The FBI was called in and also concurred that Susie had been abducted. They found a single set of footprints leading to the tent and then away, returning to a parking lot that was now empty. Hours turned into days with the Yeagers refusing to leave the park until their daughter was located. When the searchers began dragging the lake looking for a body, Marietta Yeager knew that they would be heading home soon and probably without her baby Susie. Still, the family stayed a little over a month while the search continued until they were forced to go home to Michigan so Bill could return to his job. There were a couple of leads early in the investigation. Three days after Susie's abduction on June 28th, The first lead came in when an anonymous male placed a call to the FBI office in Denver, Colorado. He said that he had Susie Yeager and demanded a $25,000 ransom for her safe return. However, he didn't provide evidence that Susie was alive and just said he would call back with details on how to drop the money. The call never came. Then a few days later, on July 2nd, a second ransom call was received. This one was placed at Sheriff Ronald Brown's home in Three Forks and was answered by his wife. A man claiming to be the kidnapper now said that the ransom amount was $50,000. This time, he provided information that only the kidnapper and the family would know. He described a unique feature of Susie's fingernails. The FBI determined that the second call had come from Cheyenne, Wyoming, but again, the lead yielded no more clues as to Susie's well-being or her whereabouts. Then, three months after Susie's disappearance, on September 24, 1973, a phone call was received at the Jaeger's home in Farmington Hills, Michigan. The phone was answered by one of the Jaeger's sons, Daniel. The man on the other end of the line asked him if he wanted his sister back. He mentioned the previous call placed to Sheriff Brown. Daniel had the presence of mind to turn on a recorder that had been connected to the Jaeger's home, and the call was recorded but the call was short and the man hung up before there was enough time for the call to be traced. After that, there were no more phone calls. The following winter in February of 1974, a 19-year-old woman would go missing from her apartment in the tiny town of Manhattan, Montana, located just a few miles from Three Forks and where Susan Yeager had been abducted. At first, these two incidents would seem to be unconnected But before long, the young woman's disappearance would lead to a big break in the Susan Yeager case. Sandra Smolligan, age 19, had grown up in the town of Manhattan, Montana. She'd been wed when still a teen, but the marriage hadn't lasted long. In 1974, she was divorced and living alone in a small apartment located above a garage on Main Street she worked as a food server at a nearby restaurant. On Friday, February 8th, Sandra attended a basketball game in a nearby town before returning to Manhattan. That night, she was seen at the American Legion Hall where there was a clubhouse that served as a bar and gathering spot for the locals. It was located less than a block from her apartment. The last sighting of Sandra was just after midnight as she left the hall and headed for her apartment. The following Monday, February 11th, after her father couldn't reach her that weekend, he reported her missing. Police checked her apartment, but there was nothing out of place. Sandra had simply disappeared. The only clue they had to go on was that her car, a 1969 white Ford Cortina, was missing. The description of Sandra and her car was given to patrol officers in Manhattan, as well as to police departments in towns nearby. A week after Sandra Smalligan disappeared, Sheriff's Deputy Ron Green was searching the rural Horseshoe Hill area located about an hour north of where Sandra was last seen, and only 12 miles away from the campsite where Susan Yeager had been abducted. By chance, the deputy had been working on Sandra Smolligan's case and had also been previously assigned to Susie Yeager's case. On this day, he noticed fresh tire tracks leading off the main road and decided to follow them. As he drove onto the property, he noticed a piece of cloth snagged on a fence post and blowing in the breeze. Upon closer inspection, he identified it as a pair of women's underwear. Nearby was the abandoned Lockhart Ranch. Police were still searching for Sandra's missing car, so the deputy decided to search the abandoned barn. The barn door was nailed shut, but the nails holding it closed stood out as much newer than the rest of the barn. He pried the doors open, and underneath a tarp and some straw, he found Sandra's white car. He checked inside the car, but there was no sign of the young woman. Later, Sandra's parents would identify the underwear as belonging to their daughter. More investigators arrived to search the buildings and land around the Lockhart Ranch property. Near one of the outbuildings, they came upon a 55-gallon drum that had been used as a burn pit. It contained a large amount of ash. After the ashes were sifted through carefully, They yielded human teeth and many small fragments of charred bones. In the end, over 1,800 pieces of human bones were recovered from the barrel and found strewn around the burn pit area. The bones were sent to forensic anthropologists at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. to be analyzed. There they identified the bones as belonging to at least two individuals. One was described as a female between 18 and 22 years old, who stood between 5 feet and 5 feet 4. This description matched Sandra Smoligan. After teeth recovered from the burn pit were matched to Sandra's dental records, investigators identified the bones as her remains. Some of the other bone fragments were identified as belonging to a child between the ages of 6 and 8 years old, most likely a female. The FBI suspected that these were the remains of 7-year-old Susan Yeager now missing for eight months, but they could not be certain. Remains of a woman and a child were found at the abandoned Lockhart Ranch in February of 1974, eight months after Susan Yeager's abduction and just days after Sandra Smalligan's disappearance. With the discovery of Sandra's car, they began looking into people Sandra knew, who may have had information about her disappearance. The name David Meirhofer came up in their investigation. Meerhoffer was a 25-year-old handyman whose family had lived in the town of Manhattan, Montana, for decades. Meirhofer had no criminal record and had, in fact, been a decorated soldier earning the rank of sergeant in the United States Marine Corps. He had entered into service and was sent to Camp Pendleton in California in 1969, after which he was shipped to Vietnam. He returned to the States in early 1973. Those who knew him at all said he was a loner. He didn't appear to have many close friends. Mirhoffer had inserted himself into the investigation early on. He was well known around the small town of Manhattan, with many residents describing him as odd. As the investigation to Sandra Smolligan's disappearance was being conducted, deputies and officers would meet in the local diner for lunch. Mirhoeffer had shown up several times during these lunches to ask about the investigation and offer his assistance as a search volunteer. After Sandra Smolligan's remains were found, investigators realized that Meerhofer knew the Horseshoe Hills area well. They also found out that he had a personal connection to the missing woman. Friends told FBI investigators that Sandra had gone out on one date with David Mirhoeffer. She had told her friends that she thought Mirhofer too aggressive, so had declined a second date, although he had asked her out again several times. Now with Mirhofer continuing to chat it up with investigators, they decided to take him up on his offer to help with the investigation. They asked him if it was true he had dated Sandra. He admitted he had, but said they had only gone out the one time. They then asked Meerhofer if he would agree to take a polygraph test. To their delight, he agreed. However, the test did not show any signs of deception on his part. Meerhofer remained extremely calm throughout the polygraph questioning. Then they asked for one more favor. Would he be willing to be questioned under the influence of sodium amytal? Sodium amytal has also been called truth serum. This is because it activates GABA receptors, which among other effects decreases inhibition. Under its influence, the drug can cause a person to divulge information they would not typically share under normal circumstances. Mirhoffer, seemingly with nothing to hide, even agreed to this and was administered the drug and questioned about Sandra Smulligan's disappearance once again. His answers did not waver from the original statements he gave to police. The investigation continued, but running out of leads, investigators decided to employ a brand new technique in hopes it would yield more clues. FBI Special Agent John Mulaney was called in to review all the information from both the Susie Yeager and Sandra Smolligan cases. He was then tasked with creating a profile of the most likely suspect. Agent Bellaney told investigators that they were looking for a male suspect who he suspected had military training due to the stealth he'd employed to abduct both Susie and Sandra. They also believed he would have considerable physical strength. They knew that Susie Yeager, who'd weighed 55 pounds, had not walked, but had been carried off, most likely while putting up a struggle. The profiler also believed that the suspect would be a loner who had trouble engaging with the opposite sex. Finally, he believed he would have a mental illness, possibly schizophrenia. The FBI took this profile and looked again at their list of suspects. They thought they should focus on David Meerhoffer, but the local police disagreed. They pointed out that Meerhoffer had already been suspected questioned, and had passed not only a polygraph test, but questioning under the influence of sodium amytal. Agent Mullaney explained that if, as he believed, the suspect suffered from schizophrenia, he could have been in a dissociative state when questioned. This would allow him to lie without exhibiting the signs a person would normally experience while stressed, increased heart rate, breathing, etc. Because of this, he could pass a polygraph and appear to be truthful, even if lying. Mulaney, listening to the recordings of the ransom calls, realized that the kidnapper needed to feel in control and also had a great need to feel important. Mulaney believed that the caller enjoyed the feeling of having power over Susie Yeager's family and believed that he would contact Marietta Yeager again on the upcoming anniversary of Susie's abduction. An interview was set up for Marietta to speak to the news media in hopes that this might entice the kidnapper to phone her again. Marietta was a committed Catholic. With a deep faith in God. When Susie was first taken, she said that she felt she could kill the person with her bare hands and not lose any sleep over it. But later, she felt the need to forgive her daughter's kidnapper. Now, a year later, she said that she'd long ago decided to forgive him and was quoted as saying, I would give anything to speak to the kidnapper myself. My heart aches for him and how he must feel. When she was asked what she would want to happen to him if he had, in fact, killed her daughter, She said that she would not want him to receive the death penalty. She was opposed to it morally and would not want such an action taken in her daughter's name. The interview did the trick, and on June 24, 1974, at 3.30 a.m., Marietta Yeager answered the phone and heard the voice of the kidnapper at the other end. He said, Is this Susie's mom? And then, I took her one year ago to the minute. Marietta asked him, can we have her back? He hung up. A few minutes later, he called again. He started telling her story about how Susie was doing well and was having a great time with him. They had visited Disneyland together and the zoo, he claimed. He enjoyed being in control of the conversation and stringing Marietta along. He said he was too smart to get caught, but she shouldn't worry about her daughter. She was doing well. Marietta asked him for proof. She wanted to speak to Susie, but he said she was asleep, and he didn't want to wake her. Marietta had already signaled her husband to start the trace. The FBI had placed equipment on their phone line. She tried to keep him on the phone long enough for the trace to be completed so police could locate the kidnapper. She told the kidnapper that she was praying for him and that she felt sorry for him and wanted him to get the help he needed. She said he must have been very lonely to have taken Susie. The man began to seem rattled, but stayed on the phone with Marietta for over an hour. In the end, before he hung up, he began to cry. Unfortunately, the call had to be traced through many telephone switching stations, but the trail ended in Florida, where the equipment there failed, and the call could be traced no further. They had lost him, and Marietta still had no proof that her daughter was alive. The FBI had not shared their belief with the family that Susie was most likely dead. Then a month later, in mid-July, a rancher who lived outside of Manhattan, Montana, called the phone company to report a call to Michigan on his phone bill that he had not made. When they looked into it, they discovered that his phone line had been cut into and used to make the long-distance call. FBI agent Peter Dunbar learned that the unauthorized phone call had been the one placed to the Yeagers by the kidnapper. The agent interviewed the rancher and was told that David Meirhofer had done some work for him in the past. The FBI also discovered that Meerhofer had worked as a communications specialist during his time in the Marines, and would have had knowledge on how to cut into a phone line to place a call that couldn't be traced back to him. The FBI next used a voice print analysis to compare their recorded phone calls with David Meirhofer to those made by the kidnapper. They were a match. They approached Meerhoffer again with this new evidence, but he continued to deny he had anything to do with Susie's kidnapping or the phone calls placed to the Jaegers. He said that he had a large extended family in the area around the town of Manhattan, and many of his relatives had similar voices, so it could have been any one of them who'd made the call. Investigators next conducted a unique lineup a voice lineup. They brought in several of the relatives Meerhoffer said had similar voices and had each read a portion of the call transcript. Marietta listened to all the voices and picked David Meirhofer's out as the kidnapper. She had no doubt in her mind that it was his voice who had called her home and spent over an hour talking to her. Wanting to put pressure onto their suspect, investigators decided to set up a face-to-face meeting between David Meirhofer and Marietta Yeager. Still feeling cocky and in control, Meirhofer agreed to this meeting. On September 12th, they met at his attorney's office. Marietta Yeager would later say that she wanted to look into his eyes and tell him that she'd forgiven him. When she first saw him, she believed that he was mentally ill, but she also felt completely certain that he was the man who had kidnapped her daughter. Marietta started by telling him that she knew he was the man she'd spoken with and had told her things that only the kidnapper could know. He denied it. She told him it was okay to be honest with her. She wasn't mad and didn't want revenge. She told him she forgave him, but just wanted him to tell her where Susie was and if she was okay. The meeting lasted for over an hour, but Mirhofer never admitted anything to Marietta. He was then put under 24-hour surveillance. They believed he would try to anonymously call Marietta again and wanted to catch him in the act to arrest him. After days of watching his every move, on September 24th, he somehow was able to slip out of his home unseen. September 24th was the one-year anniversary of the first call the kidnapper had placed to the Jaegers. The phone rang once again in the Jaegers' home. Marietta identified the voice as belonging to David Meerhofer. It seems he thought he could fool the investigators into believing he'd never left his home and could not have placed the call, thus proving they had mistakenly identified him as a suspect the caller identified himself as Mr. Travis. Marietta continued to call him David. He then said he had Susie with him and could prove she was alive. Marietta heard the voice of a young girl on the phone who said, He's a nice man, Mommy. We're having a lot of fun together. Marietta knew it was not the voice of her daughter. After several minutes, the caller became angry and flustered by Marietta's calm demeanor in her insistence that quote, "I know it's you, David." Unquote. He blurted out information that she'd shared with him when they'd met face to face in Montana, things only David would know. He realized that he had blown his cover and became angry. Before hanging up the phone, he shouted, "You'll never see your little girl alive again." Upon hearing the call, the prosecutor was afraid that Mirhofer had taken another girl and forced her to record the statement Marietta had heard over the phone. Fearing that another child was in danger, authorities decided to immediately arrest him. The call was traced to a motel in Salt Lake City, Utah, 400 miles away. While Mirhoeffer was still out of town, investigators arrived at his house with a search warrant. The FBI profiler said that this kind of offender would most likely keep souvenirs from his victims anything from clothing to jewelry to body parts. In Mirhofer's freezer, they made a grisly discovery. Two packages wrapped in butcher paper and marked with the initials SMS were found to contain pieces of flesh and a severed hand. The initials matched Sandra Marie Smolligan, and the hand would later be determined to belong to her. When Mirhofer returned to town, he was immediately arrested. Other physical evidence found at his house was stationary from the motel where he'd placed the phone calls, and upon it was written the name he'd given Marietta, Mr. Travis. Bloody sheets were also found in his apartment. As detectives got ready to interrogate Meerhofer and list out all the evidence they had against him, they were surprised to receive word from his attorney that he was ready to confess. They were even more shocked to hear that as long as they guaranteed the death penalty would not be sought against him, he would confess to not two, but four murders. Upon his arrest on September 27, 1974, David Mirhofer admitted he had kidnapped and murdered little Susan Yeager in June of 1973. He also said he was responsible for the murder of 19-year-old Sandra Smalligan, but he wasn't done confessing yet. In all, he would admit to four murders, beginning when he was still in high school. On March 19, 1967, 13-year-old Bernard Pullman was climbing the supports over the Nixon Bridge that crossed the West Gallatin River outside of Manhattan, Montana. Bernie was with another boy who heard a gunshot before seeing his friend fall into the water. The boy ran for help, but when the men arrived and pulled Bernie from the river, he was dead. At first, they thought he was a victim of drowning, but then it was found that a small caliber bullet hole had pierced his heart. They had no suspects, and Bernie Pullman's murder remained unsolved until Mirhoeffer's confession seven years later. Mirhoeffer had been a senior in high school and knew and liked Bernie Pullman, but he had gotten into a fight with Bernie's older brother, a classmate of his. Meerhofer had seen the boy playing by the river and decided to kill him for revenge. A year and two months later, another local boy had been killed under mysterious circumstances, and his murder came to mind after the disappearance of Susan Yeager. Michael Rainey, aged 12, had been on a Boy Scout camping trip in May of 1968, when he was found dead in his tent. Like Susie Yeager, he had also been camping at Missouri Headwater State Park, and had been sleeping in a tent with other children at the time of his attack. His tentmate discovered him bleeding profusely early in the morning. The tent had been sliced open, and a stab wound was found under the boy's arm. But an autopsy determined that he had died from blunt force trauma to the head. Meerhofer now confessed to Rainey's murder, saying his motivation was that he had been a volunteer with the scout troop, but had been told that he could no longer participate in troop activities. He did not say what he'd done to motivate this band. He was angry and had gone to the scout camp and picked Rainey randomly. I wanted to get a little kid, he said, but he claimed that when he saw him, he didn't have the courage to try and take him, so he stabbed him instead. However, strangely, he said he had killed Rainey by stabbing him, but would not admit to bludgeoning the boy. He did not strike again until Susie's abduction in June of 1973 but he'd enlisted in the Marines in 1969 and had been gone for several years out of the area. About Susie's abduction, he told detectives that he'd gone to Headwater State Park and had come upon the Yeager campsite. He had overheard girls talking in a tent and waited until it got quiet again before slitting the tent open and grabbing Susie. He'd pulled her outside and choked her into unconsciousness, but did not kill her. He said he then drove her to the Lockhart Ranch. It's unclear how long he kept her alive, but said he later strangled her to death, cut up her body into small pieces, and burned the remains, scattering her bones. He told them where they could find the skull he had buried. He denied that he had sexually assaulted Susan Yeager. When they asked what his motivation was for kidnapping and killing the little girl, he had no answer. He said he had not intended to kill Sandra Smalligan; her he'd planned to keep. He admitted to slipping into her apartment and choking her into unconsciousness, but she was still alive. He tied her up and placed tape around her mouth. He began gathering some of her clothes and other items to take away with him as well. He had planned to take her and keep her imprisoned, but when he returned to her, she had suffocated as he'd covered her nose as well as her mouth with the tape. He took her body to the Lockhart Ranch, and as he'd done before, he cut the body up into small pieces and burned most of it before scattering most of the bones he admitted to keeping her hand and some of her flesh and taking it home with him putting it into his freezer when asked why he confessed to wanting to cook and eat it investigators asked Meyerhofer about two other unsolved disappearances they had on their books in late July of 1973 a month after Susie's abduction two other young girls 9-year-old Jessica Westfall an 11-year-old Karen Tyler, had disappeared from Kalispell, Montana. Mirhoeffer denied having been responsible for those disappearances. David Mirhoeffer was charged with kidnapping and two counts of murder. He was set to plead guilty the next day in exchange for the state agreeing not to seek the death penalty. Meerhoffer was taken to a cell in the Gallatin County Jail. Four hours later, he was found dead. He had hanged himself using a jail-issued hand towel. Investigators in Gallatin County were unaware they were dealing with a serial killer until David Meirhofer confessed to his multiple murders over a period of seven years. The term serial killer had barely been coined, and David Meirhofer would have the distinction of being the first of these types of killers who would be caught using the new FBI technique of offender profiling. Marietta Yeager would be given credit as being instrumental in catching her daughter's killer. Her words of compassion and forgiveness caused him to continue reaching out to her and spurred him to talk enough to give himself away. She continues to work as an anti-death penalty advocate. She even tried to visit Merhofer's mother, Eleanor, to give her words of comfort, but Mrs. Merhofer couldn't bring herself to meet with Susie's mother. She said it brought up the heartache and trauma all over again, and she took to her bed for several days after hearing from Marietta. Meerhoffer's parents also tried to keep their son's confession from being released to the public. However, upon his death, the transcript of Mirhoeffer's four-hour confession, according to Montana law, became a public document. As far as his motivation to kill, some believe Mirhoeffer must have been mentally unstable. However, he had no diagnosed mental illness, and his records in school, the community, and the military showed no signs of erratic behavior or violence. In fact, he seemed to always be a rule follower and very by the book and was described as a very controlled individual. Some found him a bit odd, but nothing beyond that. There was one thing that some would later point to as a clue into Meerhofer's mental state or motivations. After his death, his apartment was searched and a Bible was found with several passages underlined. One verse that was underlined in totality was Hebrews 9.22. Quote, And almost all things are, by the law, purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission, unquote. In other words, without blood being shed, there can be no forgiveness. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'll be back next week with another episode of the series Taunting Terrors, and this one is a really fascinating one, a case like no other I've ever covered. You won't want to miss it. Also this week, I plan to give you not one, but two new episodes of Let's Talk About True Crime. First, I'll be discussing the documentary, I Love You, Now Die, about the Michelle Carter case. This is the case out of Massachusetts where a teenage boy takes his own life, but it's discovered that his girlfriend, Michelle Carter, encouraged him to do so. She's later charged with involuntary manslaughter for her part in her boyfriend's death. There's a lot to unpack with this one, and me and my guest host, Lorena Garcia, give our take on this case and the documentary. Then, there's some breaking true crime news in the celebrity reality television world, and we need to talk about it. I'll be joined by the podcast host and comedian, Tracy Carnazzo, from Teen Mom Trash Talk Podcast, and I can't wait. You won't want to miss it, so make sure to subscribe today to Let's Talk About True Crime just look for the cute taco logo or click on the link in the show notes. Finally, don't forget you can become a patron of Once Upon a Crime, and for just two bucks a month, you'll get a bonus episode each month, ad-free episodes, a welcome packet of goodies, and you'll also be part of our special Patreon community. For just five bucks a month, you'll get all that, plus a premium welcome gift, and a bonus video each month. And if you want to go all out and become a $10 patron, you'll get everything I just listed, plus an extra special premium gift and a handwritten note from me. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to sign up today. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Special thanks to Lorena Garcia for her work on our website, YouTube channel, Patreon shipments, research help, and everything else she does to keep this boat afloat. Thanks, Lorena. Until next time, be good to one another.